welcome nerds from around the world. Grab yourself your favorite beverage, get comfy, and prepare to get your nerd on as we dive into the world of computing, past and present. This is the Lunduke Journal's Big Tech Show for Sunday, March 5th. 2023 that that music you heard as the show opened is from Bix Biederbeck and the Wolverines it is a tune that was recorded way back in the year 1924 it's called Copenhagen it was actually a pretty big pretty big hit in the jazz world back in the 1920s now you may be asking yourself Lunduke why on this green earth of ours are you opening a computer show where ostensibly we're going to talk about computer news and operating systems and tips and tricks and and all that sort of thing with a jazz song from a hundred years ago? Here's why. That song, which was recorded in 1924 by a man who died just a few years later in the early 1930s, didn't become public domain until 2019, 95 years after it was recorded, and close to 90 years after the artist who would ever receive royalties for it had long since passed away. How crazy is that? How wild is it? that the the United States continues to pass extension after extension to copyright law. Now, theoretically, it should just be 50 years. And then there was a law that extended it to 75 years after the death of the artist or after it was recorded. It gets really murky. Well, then there was a law that was called the that was called Sonny Bono's Sonny Bono's law. Uh, Many people nicknamed it the Mickey Mouse Protection Act because Disney pushed really hard for this extension. But this extension was passed some years back to give an additional 20 years off of the already absolutely ludicrous 75 years where an uh, an item, a a work of art, a piece of music would retain its copyright and not become public domain. Because, of course... Disney didn't want Mickey Mouse to go into the public domain. So this item, this this delightful little jazz ditty from 1924, only became public domain a few short years ago, even though the man who recorded it had been dead for close to a century. Now, this doesn't just apply to music. This applies to all manner of works, books, and yes, even software and hardware designs. How insane is that? It is absolutely ludicrous, borderline bonkers. And it needs to get reformed. It needs to be changed. Things like the Mickey Mouse Protection Act and Sonny Bono's Law need to be repealed. And I I put this out there into the universe at the beginning of This, the inaugural episode of the Lunduke Journal's Big Tech Show. Because it's so gosh darned important. And just the same, because it's public domain, I can now use that wonderful little jazz song by that forgotten-by-most genius known as Bix, spelled B-I-X, which is awesome, (laughs) 
<laughs> Biederbeck and the Wolverines. Copenhagen. All right. Let's talk about what has happened this week in computer history. Because it is important to take a look back, to know where we have been, to know where we've come from, in order to better understand where we are and where we're going. Well, this day in computer history, actually this week in computer history, marks something kind of interesting. It marks what really conceivably was the beginning of the core memory patent wars of 1956. Many of you out there are thinking, what the heck are you talking about? <laughs> this just doesn't get talked about much. But back in the 1950s, how we dealt with computer memory was still very much in a state of flux. Patents, patents were being filed fast and furious. Well, not that fast and not that furious, but a couple of patents were being filed, and solutions for how to properly store computer memory and data were being worked out. I'm going to give you a quick rundown of this, because this is, to me, absolutely fascinating. This is where, really, computer memory for digital electronic computers really kicked off. So it all started with a guy named An Wang. And now Wang, he created a patent back in 1955, a year earlier, for what he called a pulse transfer controlling device. And this, this formed a part of the overall solution that was used for core memory. Now, what was core memory or magnetic core memory? It got called both. Sometimes people back then just called it core. Well, it was random access memory. It was RAM. And it was the standard from about that point, around 1955, all the way until the mid-1970s. This was predominantly how RAM was handled. And it was kind of fascinating. Now, core memory used rings uh, of a magnetic hard material, um, usually like ferrite, something like that. And it used it as a transformer core. Each wire threaded through the core served as a transformer winding, and two or more wires passed through the core. Now, it, what was really, really wild is each individual core stored one bit of information. Not one meg, not one gig, one bit, not one kilobit, one bit. And a core can be magnetized either going clockwise or counterclockwise, which was weird. Now, the the value of that bit is one or zero. That's it. That's it. Depending on the direction that it was magnetized, right? So it was counterclockwise or clockwise. It was one or it was zero. That, to me, that's, that's really, really cool. But you can imagine this takes up a lot, a lot of space. Now, uh, I want to read something here because I found this absolutely fascinating. Uh, where is this at? The process. This is, this is true and wild. The process of reading the core, so reading the memory from it, caused the core itself to be reset to a zero, thus erasing it. This is what's called in the computing science world as a destructive readout. 
So when it is not, what's really interesting here is when it is not being written to or being read, the memory, the data, the ones and zeros being stored in magnetic core memory back then in those cores was, was, could, could stay. It was, it was, uh, uh, what's the word? Non-volatile. It is non-volatile memory. So whether you had power going to that core or not, you could turn off power and let it sit for quite some time. The data remained, but you turn it on. And the moment you read that data back, it's gone. He gone. That data gone. Wild. Absolutely wild. Now, eventually those cores got smaller and smaller because you can imagine initially we, they were talking about storing a series of bits. Those cores, that magnetic core memory did not store a whole heck of a lot. Uh, By the late 1960s, check this out. They had gotten the manufacturing of these, which was done entirely by hand because they tried to like automate the process on a nice assembly floor line. But because it had was so delicate and had to be so precise, the machinery that they were using at the time just couldn't hack it. They had to have well-trained engineers build every single magnetic core used for that memory. And over time, they got the process better and more refined and smaller. So those wires and those cores and those rings got smaller and smaller and smaller. The best they got back then by the late 60s, was they managed to stuff 32 kilobits into a cubic foot. Imagine that. One cubic foot, 12 inch by 12 inch by 12 inch, could roughly, could store about 32K. That's amazing. Anyway, so that's magnetic core memory. Now, Onwing in 1955 filed a patent for part of that, right? He filed a patent that got it part of the way there, a piece of the puzzle. Flash forward to February 28th, 1956, and a man named Jay Forrester over at MIT is awarded a patent that really pulled together all of what had been figured out up to that point by Forrester and really by others about how to make that magnetic core memory really shine. Because up until then, it was a little bit flaky. And Forrester's invention, patent number 2736880, is for a, quote, multi-coordinate digital information storage device. And that, that right there, is what really became the gold standard for how memory, how RAM worked for the next almost 20 years. Move forward just a couple days. (laughs) Now, that was February 28th, 1956. Less than a week later, March 4th, 1956, IBM inked a deal with On Wang to, to purchase his patent For his portion of the magnetic core memory, IBM bought it for half a million dollars, $500,000. Now, this caused all sorts of issues because realistically, what Forrester's patent did was had had part of, of the overall picture. And On Wang's patent had part of the overall picture. And this put IBM now in a position where they had a certain level of control over all RAM built 
through the 1970s. Yeah, IBM was brutal. Oh man, were they brutal. They were the evil empire before Microsoft ever had that, ever had that moniker. Many people, when you say in computer terms, the evil empire, they think Microsoft because they were so big and they bought so many companies and they have the monopoly and the opera. No, back in the 1980s and 1970s, when people talked about the evil empire of computing, it was IBM, because they gobbled up patents like this one from An Wang, from his magnetic core memory, in order to cast doubt on the validity of other patents, in order to impose licensing fees on so many manufacturers, and in order to corner as many markets as they could. They were, ho, 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 they were brutal. They were absolutely brutal. But... But in other, other historical news, there is something else that happened just this last week, just on March 3rd of this last week, but back in 1975, that is far happier, far more joyful, and that is the founding of the Homebrew Computer Club. <laughs> and now this, many people weren't around in the 1970s and 1980s, simply don't realize how absolutely critical this little tiny club of computer users was to the whole computer industry. But on March 3rd of 1957, the Homebrew Computer Club held their very first meeting. Now, this meeting, this auspicious meeting, was held in a garage. <laughs> in Menlo Park, California, with a sum total of roughly 30 people in attendance, and most of the people were there to talk and chat with other people who were interested in the Altair. And the, the Altair was a, a popular kit computer at the time. Now, those meetings grew and ballooned and blossomed and continued until December of 1986. They went on for well over a decade. They had... they. Almost immediately, I believe it was almost a week later, that the very first Homebrew Computer Club newsletter was sent out. And that itself proved to be absolutely historical. But here's what's wild about the Homebrew Computer Club in Menlo Park, California. Here's a few people that attended those meetings over the years and were members of that computer club. Steve Jobs. Steve Wozniak, right? Apple. Adam Osborne, who went on to build the Osborne, the big, giant, portable, luggable computer. Amazing. Jerry Lawson. Now, who's Jerry Lawson? A lot of you are like, Jerry Lawson. Do I know that name? You should. He's the man who came up with the idea for a cartridge-based video game system. Seriously. This is the man who did it. It's called the Fairchild Channel F. Jerry Lawson created it. He's the man behind... Like the fact that we had Ataris and Nintendos and Sega Genesis. Thank Jerry Lawson. He made it all happen. Also, and I'll just give you one more name drop. There's a, you could go on in a list of companies that were influenced because of the Homebrew Computer Club. But one of the other individuals that was there... There's a man called John Draper. Now, who is John Draper, you ask? 
Well, he's also known by the name Captain Crunch, and he was popular among phone-freaking circles. You remember that old story? About how in the olden days, like in the 1970s and whatnot, you could, you could hack into a phone system and get free AT&T long-distance calling. Because remember, calling long-distance used to cost a whole lot of money. <laughs> Times have changed. But you could get into those systems if you could play a specific tone. Now that specific tone, it turns out, was the exact tone that a Captain Crunch whistle played. And of course, that came from a, a box of Captain Crunch cereal. So you get, you know, back when they used to keep toys in the cereal boxes, they came with a whistle one time in Captain Crunch. And he blew that whistle into the phone receivers, and through a series of processes from there, he could get free long-distance calling on at least some systems. And so he got the nickname of Captain Crunch. All these people were part of the Homebrew Computer Club, which started March 3rd, 1950, 1975. When we come back, we got news. Oh, do we got news, baby. been yet another exciting week of layoffs here in the tech industry as expected this just keeps on coming oh my word uh, one round of layoffs after another if if you want to follow along with this if you if you can stomach the, the terror that is con- the continual onslaught of tech layoffs there is a uh, i believe it was called layoffs.fyi is a website that uh, I, I believe an out of work tech worker put together to catalog all these and watch all the layoffs that have been happening over the last 2 years and it is absolutely incredible the the sheer volume of layoffs that are coming uh some interesting ones have happened this week CNET. This isn't a big layoff. This is a small layoff, but it's one that I think I think gives you a lot of insight into where a significant part of tech journalism is going. CNET, which has been one of the biggest sources of, of tech news and journalism for, for many years, has laid off 10% of their, their writing staff. Now, that's, uh, that's not a huge number of people because... I, I don't know if you realize, but CNET's not that huge uh, in terms of their, their writers. They've really, it's about a dozen people. About a dozen tech journalists and tech reporters have been laid off. Now, why this is interesting, though, is it all seems to dovetail in with CNET's slow migration to predominantly AI-driven reporting. This came out a couple of weeks back where CNET started dabbling with AI-generated articles, right? And I mean, this is this has been talked about. As soon as ChatGPT hit the scene, people started immediately toying with things like writing an entire book using an artificial intelligence engine. In fact, you can find books that get published on, on Amazon, Kindle, and CreateSpace, and everywhere else that are nothing but chat gpt generated works which 
is in and of itself absolutely insane because those are works that are based on other people's works because chat GPT indexed other people's books and articles and the like. And then based on a, a series of inputs, it spit out what it assumed would be a, a reasonable response to whatever you asked it, such as, Hey, chat GPT, write me a short story about bunny rabbits that are really robots and they take over Christmas but do it in the style of J.K. Rowling's. <laughs> Go. And then ChatGPT will theoretically spit that back to you in a J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter style or whatnot. And because you put all those inputs in, anyone who has written works along those lines, their works, their sentences, their paragraphs, their structure, their data points will all be brought in and a new thing will be created based upon it. Now, CNET decided, well, what if we use artificial intelligence, these AI programs, these what are ostensibly a series of thousands, if not millions of if statements to create articles about a variety of topics that people typically use search engines to find data on, like um, when's a good time to get a new mortgage or, um, what are some tips about how to, uh, keep more of my taxes every year, right? These sorts of things. Now, instead of assigning that task to a human writer, what CNET did is they, they instructed one of their editors to compile a list of these often, these often queried, these often search engine searched items and spit out article after article after article answering those questions. In that way, in theory then, even though those articles would not be that well written, would not be well researched, because no human's really sitting down to research these, what they would do is they would have so many specific keywords in it for a given search topic that they would theoretically get very high rankings on search engine results. So then what CNET is really doing, and they're not alone, is they're making just fodder for search engines to garner more clicks because websites like CNET and like the vast majority of tech news outlets, they make all of their money, all of it off of ad revenue. And we're talking most of that comes from uh, those dynamically displayed ads from ad aggregators like Google AdSense, right? Ever, Google pays out for every so many click and view. So many thousands of click and views get, get, get presented on a given article. Well, that, then you get paid so many dollars. And it's not a huge amount, but if you have a large enough number of articles covering a vast enough number of search engine topics and questions, in theory, you could get a, a significant amount of traffic in order to increase your revenues. Would each of those articles, those poorly written AI generated articles that CNET cranked out, are any of those going to win a Pulitzer? No. Are any of those going to win any sort of award? No. And they're also not going to go terribly viral either because they're not going to have original reporting, original investigation, original thought, um, fun, cool anecdotes. None of that's going to exist because they're not written by people. 
But if they make up for that in two ways, they still become profitable. Number one is they have a sheer volume of those AI written articles. You know, maybe maybe uh, the articles that uh, ChatGPT and the various other AI programs pump out, maybe they're not great. But if they can write a thousand of them every day and you can automate the publishing, heck, you can even automate through an AI the creation of banner images and everything. So it looks like a bunch of work went into it. But you could automate the heck out of the process that you could create thousands of them in a day. And an editor's only job at that point is to just to come up with the question to ask. Even if each one results in very few, very small amounts of traffic, they still make a metric ton of money. And then you take step two and you get rid of the writers. And that's where CNET is now. They're in the process of removing their writing staff, their human writers, because their their business model means they don't need those human writers anymore. They're just there to create regurgitated press releases and regurgitated other people's works by an AI program at such a high volume that in theory, even if every single article performs poorly, meaning it not a lot of people click on it, they still are profitable. Wild. So this is, this, this is the scary part here. And we're going to get back to layoffs in a second because there's some more. But the scary part here for tech journalism is that this is where many tech news outlets are heading. So many. I, I had a call about a month ago. No, it was about two months ago. Before, before the chat GPT hysteria really hit. And people got really crazy excited about the chat GPT AI and still generating books and everything else based on it. I had a conversation with an editor from a fairly well-known tech outlet. People don't maybe not realize this, but the, the world of tech journalism is very small. There are not that many of us out there. And a very large percentage of us, we know each other to one degree or another. At the very least, we've seen each other at conventions and chatted a little bit and broken bread here and there. And so, by and large, a lot of us try to stay in contact. So I was having a nice chat. Um, we, this particular editor, we, we knew each other a little bit, but not that well. And he talked to me about how they were looking to hire more editors. And I thought, well, that's, that's great. At first I was, I was thrilled. Wow. More editors working for a tech publication. That means more in-depth, hard hitting tech news, more tech journalism, more coverage, more real investigative work happening around IBM and Google and Apple and Microsoft and everything. That's amazing news. And then as we talked more, I realized that the other shoe had not yet dropped. <laughs> what at first I thought was amazing news about a tech publication doing well turned out, turned into my personal hell, my personal dystopian nightmare of tech journalism, because what they were really doing was reducing their total number of writing staff, hiring 
what was what they're calling editors, but where in reality are people who look at search data and search popularity to find topics that their website does cover and create queries that can generate articles through a variety of different AI programs. ChatGPT is just one of many. I don't know if people realize there are quite a few out there that have been going for years now for creating articles and they've been improving quite, quite readily. They've been getting rid of, they're getting rid of the writers or at least a a portion of the writers and hiring what they're calling editors, but are extremely entry level positions. These are not, they're not hiring someone who knows the Oxford English dictionary and rule books inside and out. They're not hiring someone who carefully studies the AP guidelines for writing to make sure that your writing is excellent and, and correct. No, 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 no. They're hiring entry-level people who have never done any sort of tech journalism or tech reporting or really any long-term writing to scour the Google Analytics looking for great topics that people might search for that might be timely, pay attention to social media to see what people might be asking for, and as soon as they see people asking for things, use an AI to generate the entire article pump it out, make sure it's formatted nicely, and publish. That's what they're hiring. And you start looking around at many of the other outlets out there, and there's a lot of them, including the mainstream big news outlets, like the big news sites. A lot of them are hiring tech people. But when you look carefully at what they're looking for experience in and what they're looking to pay and the job duties, you realize they're not looking for a hard-hitting tech journalist to come in and blow the whistle and blow the doors off of the tech news stories of the day. And I don't know why you have to go into a pirate voice for that, but you do. It's required by law. <laughs> oh, it is, it is just dreadful. It is absolutely dreadful. Expect more of this, by the way. If, if you are interested in tech news, you are going to be seeing a lot more of this. In fact, so here we are at the beginning of March. I will put this prediction out there. By the end of June, March, April, May, June, so just a couple months from now, by the end of June, if you read, say, five tech journalist articles in a given day, at least one of them will be completely fake, meaning it was written by a, by a computer program and only given a cursory glance by an entry-level editor that may or may not know what that darn thing called Linux is. I'm just saying it's going to happen. All right, let's, let's, let's move back to uh, other doom and gloom. <laughs> for a moment. I promise the whole world is not doom and gloom. There's great stuff happening in the world of technology and computers nowadays, but there is some there's some doom and gloom, and I guess we got to get through it. Uh, Electronic Arts just laid off 200 employees at their Baton Rouge studio. Uh, now, these were predominantly testers, QA people, working on some of their video games, including Apex Legends, which is their big battle royale game. Anyway, it's a, it's a big number. 
which that doesn't necessarily signal anything in and of itself. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're, they're seeing a, a giant, you know, contraction within, you know, gaming, spending and the like. But anytime that there's hundreds of engineers, whether they're programmers, com- quality assurance and testers, uh, documentation people, any engineers being laid off, uh, sysadmins, DevOps people, whatever. It makes me stand up and take notice, especially when we've been seeing so many other layoffs happening because this the layoffs aren't just restricted to, uh, say, big enterprise outlets or telecommunications outlets. They're hitting consumer software, consumer hardware, any general computing or video game software related thing. They're getting hit by by layoffs right now. Another one that just hit is is Ericsson, right? Uh, Ericsson, yeah, the big telecom company. They announced 8,500 of their employees are going to get laid off in short order. That's roughly 8% of their total company. Now, they're, they're a big company. Ericsson's huge. They've been around for forever. I mean, they've, they've been a giant in cell phones and everything else for quite some time. And they're laying off 8,500 people. It's uncertain as yet what locales they will be in. But assuming you you base it on, you know, where most of their employees are and where most of their divisions are having problems, it's mostly going to be North American employees that are going to be going to be getting the axe. Other companies that have announced layoffs this week, Airbnb, Loft, Zscaler. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Bringing the total, the total number of people in the tech industry, meaning in computer software, computer hardware, and related services that have been laid off since January 1st of this year, meaning just in the last two months, that number is now 123,822. No, 882. Over 123,000 people in the tech industry. Now, that's worldwide, but the majority of those are based out of out of North America with some in the UK and, and Europe and some in Canada as well. But those are massive layoffs. Now, now com- let's compare that. So that's 123,000 in the last two months. The number for all of 2022 is 161,000. So we have not yet hit the entirety of the layoffs for last year, but it's only two months in. At our current rate, we will absolutely eclipse the total 12 months of layoffs for 2022 by the end of March. Absolutely. Absolutely that will happen. Here's the crazy thing. The current quarter which is not yet over. We are two months. We're just beginning month three of Q1 of 2023. This is the largest number of layoffs in the tech industry ever. The number is huge. Now you could say, I mean, I mean, huge. Let, let me, let me put this in context. I wrote an article uh, for the Lunduke Journal over uh, back on February 9th talking about this a little bit. If you compare that, 
the total number of layoffs during the bursting of the dot-com bubble. Remember this back in the end of 99 through 2001, 2002-ish? The the whole dot-com bubble just imploded. You know, the famous companies like Pets.com and whatnot just kaboom and layoffs everywhere. The layoffs were so dramatic, it was evening news almost every night on all major stations. That's how dramatic it was. To put this into context... The total number of employees laid off or that lost their jobs because the tech companies went out of business entirely. But this is the total number of people that lost their jobs at all. Between December of 1999 and January of 2001, that's 14 months, the height of the dot-com bursting bubble was 54,000. And that's a lot of people. Now, the last 13 months as of the end of, uh, let's see, the last 13 months now, we are at around 300-something thousand for the last 13 months. Yeah. We're over five times now the layoffs that we saw during the bursting of the dot-com bubble. Now, we could say... We could say, oh my gosh, that's because the tech industry is bigger now. There's more people now. Okay, two things, uh, two things to say to that. Number one, the tech industry is bigger now, undeniably bigger now. The tech industry is huge now. However, the major tech firms like Microsoft are not five times bigger they're not. Speaking as someone who was around at companies like Microsoft during the dot-com bubble bursting, I remember there were a lot of people laid off. The layoffs happening now at companies like Microsoft is, is proportionally significantly larger than they were during the bubble burst. Now, a lot of the companies that are around now were not around back then or not around in any significant way, like Google, right? Google hadn't, Google isn't, is a monster now. They're a giant mega corporation. So it's hard to measure then versus now when a lot of companies either were just getting started or haven't, hadn't even gotten started yet. But the companies that are seeing layoffs are seeing layoffs now that are both bigger in number and percentage of their total their total employee size. We've never seen anything like this before. And the, the, the second thing I would add to this is even if, let's say that the tech industry was, heck, let's say the tech industry was 50 times as big as it used to be, right? Let's say it's just massive. And so percentage-wise, the total number of layoffs is a tiny percentage compared to the dot-com boom, assuming that, which isn't the case, but let's assume. We're still talking about hundreds of thousands of people laid off. That is massive. That is multiple significantly sized cities full of people, for every man, woman, and child laid off. If you assume that all of those people have a family with a couple of kids, we're talking about a million people impacted with layoffs. 
Now, I'm not saying that they can't do the layoffs. I'm not saying that layoffs are evil. I'm not saying that they're not evil. (laughs) But what I am saying is it is strange how little this is being covered by the vast majority of media. That's bizarre. That's very bizarre. And I, I would have to ask why. Now, there's a little bit of good news. There's a tiny, tiny bit of good news out there. And that is that the total layoffs for February, for last month, the month that just ended, is down a little bit. <laughs> it's actually down quite a bit. Because January, we were over 84,000 people laid off. But in February, only 36,000 people. Now, what's funny, though, is that means February, that was that had significantly less layoffs than January. February still was almost the entirety of the layoffs we saw during the dot-com bubble burst. Wild. All right, when we come back, we're going to be talking... <laughs> We're going to be talking about a story that amused me deeply. And we're going to also talk a little bit, just, this is fun. This is one of my favorite stories in a long time. It involves human relations, uh, religion, and windows. And that just makes me happy. And we're also going to be talking about, (laughs) about how being able to choose your own OS makes you happy. Let me tell you how it will be. There's one for you, 19 for me Cause I'm the tax man Yeah, I'm the tax man Back in the end of January, in early February, I conducted a rather large, I wouldn't call it a scientific poll, but a rather large poll of computer nerds. Over 6,000 nerds, 6,022 to be precise, responded to this survey. And we asked a variety of crazy questions. We talked about what operating systems people used, which Linux distributions they used, if any, what mobile systems they used, if they made them happy, <laughs> like like if they were happy in general. Like, just We just wanted to measure things. We talked about political affiliations. We talked about uh, whether they could u- pick their own systems at work, all sorts of stuff. Because we had questions. We wanted to answer a large amount of questions. And realistically, there just, there just isn't a lot of real surveys happening among computer nerds. We make a lot of assumptions. We look at web browser stats to get detailed reports of what market share is and, and all sorts of things. But when we really sit down and look at it, we just don't know a whole heck of a lot about the world of computer nerdery in 2023. So I put out I put out this survey and one of the results from that survey I published uh, just this last week and I want to read a small amount of it to you because I found it fascinating. I wanted to look at whether or not there was any correlation between the ability of a person in an office or at home being able to choose the operating system they use and their happiness, right? 
I wanted to know if if a company required you to use Microsoft Windows ME, does that make you sad? It should. But does it? Right? Like, you and I, we can make some guesses. I think we can make a lot of educated guesses about what what in this scenario would make people sad. And yes, of course, it seems obvious. Having more freedom over your computing environment. Being able to choose what operating system and probably by proxy what software you run probably is going to make you happier. I would think it would make me happier. But maybe I'm a weirdo. Maybe I'm a wackadoodle. So what we asked. And we have data that get, tells us exactly. Here we go. The first question. How many tech users, how many like computer nerds in their day job can choose which operating system they use? Now, I think all of us have experienced a job where we can't choose. And most of us assume, I think, that it's a lot of people that cannot choose their OS. Well, at least among computer nerds, 54.7% of us can choose the operating system we use for our daily work computer. And 453 cannot choose their OS. So it's pretty even. But most people, a slim majority, can actually choose their OS. That's actually better than I thought. I, If I would have guessed, I would have said 75% of people can't choose, right? Because I've heard of too many stories of computer companies and the like just being hardcore draconian about locking their systems down. But this is a this is better than I thought. Now, a meaty question. Is there any correlation between your general level of happiness in your life <laughs> and whether or not you can choose what OS you use during the day for your job? It seems like a silly thing to, to, to wonder about, right? I mean, it kind of does. Uh, why, why would that have an impact on how happy a person is? And I have a general thought on that topic. I believe that computers should bring us joy. That computers are an extension of us. When I sit down and work on my computer and I'm spending four hours, five hours, 12 hours at a computer, writing, doing spreadsheets, uh, programming, testing code, whatever. I want to enjoy that experience as much as possible. I want to know that I have a personal amount of freedom in how that experience is set up and how, how my computer, my desktop, my laptop operates. And if that, that freedom is taken away from me and my employer says you have to run this specific OS locked down in this specific way, that makes me sad. That makes me a sad Lunduke. But are other people the same? Would that, would that impact other people the same way as me? The answer is yes. And startlingly high amounts. In fact, people, nerds, you and me, who reported that they can indeed choose their own work operating system, they reported to have a 7.1% higher level of general happiness than people who could not choose their work OS. 
Now, this was on a scale of 1 to 10. I asked people, rate how happy you are, just in general. How happy are you? And people gave a scale of 1 to 10. And people who could, say, choose whatever OS they wanted for work, their number was 7.1% higher. Now, obviously, you look at those numbers and you immediately know, okay, the number one thing that makes them happy or not happy in life is not whether or not they can install Debian Linux or <laughs> or whatever on their laptop or work machine. That's clearly not the number one thing. And you wouldn't expect it to be. But did it have an impact? I think it's difficult to draw that conclusion here. It really is. But there is a correlation. There is a strong correlation here between people who can choose their own work OS and whether or not they're a little bit happier. And let's be honest, even if it's just an outside chance that that correlation also equaled causation, that that ability to choose the OS did indeed cause them either directly or kind of in a roundabout way to become happier even just 7% happier. Well, shoot, that's a lot happier. I mean, if you could do a little tiny thing like install different software and you knew that you have a certain chance of being 7.1% happier in your overall life, wouldn't you want to do that? <laughs> I feel like the answer is obvious there. Um, so, uh, so, so, what what operating system do people choose to use, though, right? So uh, we also have a huge amount of data from these exact same people to know what operating systems they use throughout the day. We know. What I asked them was simple. What operating systems do you use at least once a week, right? So we know how many people use, say... Windows or Mac OS or specific versions of Linux at, at least once a week. So regularly, maybe it's their full-time machine, maybe it's their home machine, maybe it's their work machine, who knows, but they at least use it once a week. Well, check this out. People who could not choose their work OS, they, could, they had no choice in what work OS they used, they use Windows over 75%. Over 75% of them use Windows every week. Among the people who could indeed choose their own OS, that number for Windows dropped to 50%. <laughs> yeah, when people had the choice, they stopped using Windows and statistically became a little bit happier. Now those are those are just stats. Those are facts, ladies and gentlemen. You can't you can't argue with 6022 nerds that all all responded to this. Um now uh, among people who could choose their own OS, they were able to increase their Mac and Linux usage slightly over the people who could not choose. But the dr most dramatic difference was the drop in Windows usage, which suggests to me this. If you cannot choose your own work OS, you're more likely to use Windows. And if you are the kind of person that's going to install Linux or want to buy a Mac, you're going to find a way to do it, even if your work doesn't let you. 
Because looking at these numbers, this tells me that people who are going to run Linux are going to run Linux somewhere, gosh darn it. <laughs> and if people want a Mac, they're going to have a Mac at home or they're going to have a Mac at work. But darn it, somehow or another, they're getting a Mac. And then the only thing that really changes dramatically is how much they do or do not use Windows. That's what changed, and that changes dramatically as soon as they're not forced to use Windows anymore. I found that absolutely fascinating. So based on that, bearing all that in mind, I want to read for you a fairly fascinating... Do we have time for this? Yeah, we got time for this. A fascinating little post that happened in Reddit on the Ask HR subreddit. This is a place where people can ask human relations related questions. And someone posted this question that blew my mind and I just loved it. I'm just going to read the whole gosh darn thing to you. Quote, I recently hired a new employee for my team. Everyone thinks she is a great addition, and she is clearly very talented, as demonstrated in her interviews. The problem came up during onboarding when we supplied her with her company laptop. She said she would need it configured in a Linux-based operating system because her religion does not allow the use of Apple or Microsoft-owned operating systems. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I'm continuing. We only currently have hardware configurations for Mac OS and Windows, and our expectations was that she will use Windows along with the rest of her team. She says that she can fulfill all job duties without Windows, and I'm inclined to believe her, but corporate policy dictates Windows, and my management is not on board with her request for Linux. What actions can either... I take as a manager to protect her rights and get her management on board with her religion or two, I can, I take against her with management for failing to fulfill her job duties. I've never come across any situation like this and I'm completely confounded as to how I should handle this. <laughs> I love the idea. Uh, I'm sorry. I just, I can't use Windows. It's against my religion. Um, I can't do it. I, I've, I've, I've never tried that approach. And now I kind of wish I would because I've worked in jobs before that required I use Windows, including at Microsoft. What if you went to work for Microsoft, but your job required your, re your religion required you to not use Windows? If Microsoft then fires you for refusing to use Windows, are they discriminating against you because of your religion? Now, before any of you say that this is preposterous, <laughs> before, you, before you pass judgment and say there's no such religion, now there is a, a related religion that you may talk about in a tongue-in-cheek way, but if you search for it online, there is a huge amount of documentation and pictures relating to that. And that is the Church of Emacs. <laughs> Richard Stallman, the, the guy behind uh, the Free Software Foundation and the GNU Project, he has done this ongoing jokey thing where he dresses up uh, like, a, like a priest in a painting, puts a little halo behind his head, and he calls himself St. Ignatius. You know, St. Ignatius. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's cheesy, but he does it. 
In fact, in fact, I had him on a show of mine many years back. I, I did a I did a Linux sucks show where I where I talk about how much Linux sucks, but it's also really great. I, it, one of one of those big dog and pony stage shows I do. And Richard Stallman did a guest appearance uh, uh, in that show where on a video screen behind me, he appeared in his robe and he had his halo behind his head as as St. Ignatius. So technically, technically, it kind of sort of does exist. Um, But uh, I, I don't I've never been at home had the door knock and then have opened the door to have someone be like, you know, do you have a moment to talk about our lord and savior linus torvalds like I, i've never i've never had that moment but ah, kudos kudos to this lady for saying sorry i can't i can't run windows as against my religion <coughs> uh man that takes that takes cojones well well done so here's here's how it how's how it worked out after a couple of days the hr person came back and reported an update and he said the following After many meetings yesterday with management, HR, legal, and IT, seriously, they got like every division of the company involved in order to figure this out. We decided to give her a shot. IT is working to come up with a configuration for her that will also make available to other employees who want to use it. HR and legal felt that although she is able to request accommodations for a sincerely held religious belief, this would have been an undue hardship for the company, and it would be okay for us to deny her request. (laughs) But ultimately, we decided that she can still fulfill job requirements without Windows. Um... I like it. I like it that that they had to really consider it. Like they they had to bring lawyers in. Like, um, if we fire her, can <clears throat> can she sue us because we discriminated against her religion? And they had to bring both like the HR and the legal and the IT, and they had to be like, well, can she? Um, it's pretty hard to you know to help her out. So maybe we're okay. <laughs> But kudos, kudos to her for pulling that off. I, if, if anyone else has tried this, please let me know. Uh, email me, brian at lunduke.com. I want to hear about anyone who has tried to get your favorite operating system, whatever it is, Windows, Mac, Linux, where you've wanted to use your favorite Amiga. Maybe there's an Amiga user out there who has really wanted to run Amiga OS as your work machine. How did you go about trying to pull it off? Did you try anything as awesome as declaring that it's against your religion to run Windows? I want to hear from you. Email me, brian at lunduke.com. I want to hear your stories. Uh, When we come back, hour two of the Lunduke Journal Big Tech Show, we're going to take a whole mess of questions from all of you. We got a lot coming on board. Stick around. It's going to be awesome. I built my own little I got tired of being knocked down. Now I'm the only one around. It makes it easier to stand my ground. Yeah. 